You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. And so what they did was they studied two groups. They said, let's take a look at two groups. Both groups had experienced life-altering events. One group was very positive. The other one was very negative. So the first group was a group of lottery winners, people who had won the lottery. The second group was a group of people who had become paralyzed. They'd become paraplegics. And the results of this study were totally counterintuitive. I mean, you, you, you would expect that the people who had won the lottery should be more happy, right? It's even a cliche. If I could just win the lottery, all my problems would be fixed. I'd be happy. And of course, you'd expect... The other group that experienced some people's worst fears. Of course, they should be more unhappy. Surely the people who've experienced good things should be happy. The people who've experienced bad things should be unhappy. This feels like common sense. That's not how it turned out. The study found that life-altering events, whether good or bad, made little difference in your level of happiness. The lottery winners were not more happy than the paraplegics. And this sounds insane. So how did they explain this? Well, they coined this phrase, the hedonic treadmill. The hedonic treadmill. Hedonism is a word that means the pursuit of pleasure. It's the pursuit of good experiences to make me happy. And they said this pursuit of pleasure, it's like a treadmill. You can pursue it at breakneck speed and you will get absolutely nowhere. To quote the study, they said people can get trapped in an endless search for bigger and better material goods to bring pleasure. The problem with this pathological pleasure-seeking is its intrinsic emptiness. Now, if you want to summarize one thing the Bible is trying to teach you, it's this. The problem with this pathological pleasure-seeking is its intrinsic emptiness. See, through their research, they arrived at exactly what the Bible tries to tell us. You and I are pathological pleasure seekers. We spend all of our energy trying to get all the pleasurable experiences we can, thinking that's what's going to make us happy. So maybe it's a, the right car or a house or a toy on Christmas. Maybe it's the right relationship. You know, if I can just find the right man or the right woman, maybe I'll ha be happy. Maybe it's another vacation. Man, if I could just be on a beach somewhere with a drink with an umbrella in it, I can find some peace of mind. You know, I think a big one for us these days is group inclusion. If, if the right and respectable and fun people, if they accept me, if I can be included, then, then I'll be happy. All of these things are empty. They are all a treadmill. In fact, the Bible has a metaphor for the emptiness of this hedonic treadmill, darkness. Darkness. And the picture is us groping around in the dark, looking for what we think will make us happy, and we can't find it. The Bible has a, another metaphor for life, fulfillment, happiness. That is light. And the Bible says what we really need, our ultimate need, is for light to shine into our darkness. So I know it's the day after Christmas. I know technically Christmas is over, but we're still in our Advent series I don't know about y'all, but we still got some Christmas to do with other sides of the family and everything. We still got the Christmas lights up. So we're still talking about 
Christmas, and we've called this series The Gift, and we've talked about, okay, when Jesus came, what exactly did he give us? And we've said he, he gives us joy, he gives us peace, he gives us faith, but today's a little bit different, because we are not talking about what Jesus gives, we are talking about what Jesus is. And today, in Isaiah 9, we're going to see Jesus is the gift of light. Turn with me to Isaiah Need to give you a little bit of context because we're kind of hopping in right in the middle of a book here. Uh, Isaiah writes to Israel in a time when they were working really, 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 really hard to bring light into their darkness. And it wasn't going real well. They were doing lots of good things, lots of things that we would all want to do. They were working for their national prosperity. They're gathering lands. They're gathering goods. They're working for their state security. They're making sure they have a good military. They're forming all the right alliances. They're working on good marriages, making sure they marry the right people. They're working on personal achievement and success. They're even working on their religious duties. They have dil- they're diligent in their moral behavior. They're faithful in all the prescribed rituals. So they're working on a lot of good stuff, groping around in their darkness. They're working on a lot of bad stuff too, a lot of pride, a lot of corruption, abusive behavior, evil alliances, pursuing sin. A lot of them in Israel in the day had gotten into using magic to kind of control their lives and control God. And none of it, none of it brings any light into their darkness. And so chapter 8 of Isaiah, we're going to mainly look at chapter 9, but chapter 8 closes with a summary of their hedonic treadmill. It says this, verse 22, and they will look to the earth. Now this phrase, look to the earth, it's It's describing their constant hunt all over the earth for light. They're looking in every nook and cranny, everything the earth has to offer them. And what do they find? It says, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Now, when I read that last phrase, thick darkness, I thought that that resonates. I've been there. Thick darkness. I want you to know this morning as we turn the corner into chapter 9. Chapter 9 is for people who have experienced 822. It's not for those who think they can be happy through performance or security or prosperity or anything on the earth. You've searched the earth. This passage are for those who are done looking to the earth. The ones who have stopped saying, if I could just win the lottery. Maybe then I'd be happy. Christmas. Christmas is for those who want the light, but know they can't find it on their own. So with that in context, let's look at chapter 9. We'll start in verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So in verse 1, he's talking to us about the reality of darkness. See, during Isaiah's time, Israel was actually fractured into two kingdoms. So you had the northern kingdom, which was Israel, the southern kingdom, which was Judah. And the north is about to be devastated by the Assyrians. The Assyrians are coming as judgment on Israel's sin and on their darkness. Now, the the Assyrians are kind of the first world superpower. They were famous for their brutality. You did not want the Assyrians coming for you. 
that they were coming. And there's all kind of historical details about how brutal and violent these people were. It's a, but it's a family service, so we'll skip all that. Just take my word for it. But what, by the time Isaiah is writing, they had already conquered some of the outskirts, some of the northernmost parts of this northern kingdom. And this was the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Zebulun is it's in the north, but over towards the Mediterranean Sea. Naphtali is just across the Jordan River from that. And they had already been invaded and sacked by the Assyrians. Then he refers to it as Galilee of the Nations. And, and this area had always been kind of a melting pot. And so even early on when Israel moved into the land and they were supposed to expel all the other ites, all the foreigners, they never really did that. They were never obedient to that. And so from a Jewish perspective, it was corrupt and it was impure. And at the time Isaiah is writing, these two regions came to symbolize darkness itself. These were the places of thick darkness. The rest of the nation trembled at the names Zebulun and Naphtali. And yet, yet these two locations, they are the focal point of this passage about light. This passage, chapter 9, is targeting the darkest place on earth. He's telling us this, this place, this is where the light will shine. Zebulun, Naphtali, they are ground zero for the coming of the light. Then we pick it up in verse 2. This is the arrival of the light. It says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So who did this light come to? He says to those who walked in darkness. So it's not to those dead laying still in darkness. You're walking around living in darkness. It's, a, it's referring to the way you live your life. The way you live your life is darkness. Your heart your relationships, your thoughts, your words, your deeds, those whose very way of life was darkness. To those people, they've seen a great light. It's probably not a more powerful, I would say more dense description of what the gospel is. That's why when we do celebrate Advent, we do it with those Advent candles. It's, it's a picture of light growing as the birth of Jesus approaches and filling up the darkness. Well, what is this light? Better question would be, who is this light? Because 700 years later, Jesus is going to spend his youth growing up in this very area, in Nazareth, in Galilee, this very land, Galilee of the Gentiles. And then when it's time to begin his ministry after his temptation in the wilderness, we read this in Matthew 4:13. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of there they are, of Zebulun and Naphtali. See, the gospel writers, as quick as they can, we're just in chapter 4 here of Matthew, they tell us Jesus is this light coming from the darkest place. See, many people think, and probably the people that did this study think, that when you're in your deep, thick darkness, you're the farthest from God. Maybe God's the farthest from you. You're farthest from the light. But you know what? There's many, many people, many here in this church who will tell you, you know what? I didn't meet Jesus when I won the lottery or when I was successful or when uh, I was able to keep all the bad things at bay. I met God in my thick darkness. In the worst times of my life, that's when the light shined in. 
See, that's what Jesus will do. He will meet you in your thickest darkness. So what's it like to, ex- like to experience this light? So verse 2 is the arrival of the light. Verse 3 through 5 is all about what it's like when this light shines on you, when it shines into your darkness. Let's pick it up. Verse 3 says, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. As with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoils. So he brings joy, but not like a normal amount of joy, multiplied joy, increased. The picture is exponential joy is what he brings. And he gives this picture that made sense in a agrarian society, may not make as much sense to us now, but kids, you'll get this. This is perfect for kids. You know that moment on, on Halloween when the trick-or-treating is done and your bucket, your bag is just fill to the top overflowing and you walk in your home and you dump that bucket out and all the Halloween candy just goes everywhere. That moment, that right there, that feeling of giddy joy, that's what it's like when light shines into your darkness. He also brings freedom from burdens, verse 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his, for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. So the light adds something, it adds joy, but it also takes away something. It takes away our burdens and our oppression. See, being in the darkness, it's not like being sound asleep in your nice comfy bed with your sheets over your comfy pillow. No, 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 no. Being in darkness, it's carrying an oppressive burden that you cannot get rid of. And Jesus lifts the burdens. How does he remove it? How how does he defeat our enemies? Well, he says it's going to be like the battle of Midian. And we don't have time to go into all the details of it, but Midian was a battle won by light. In Judges chapter 6 and 7, Gideon leads a a small army. They're way outnumbered, just 300 of them. And in the middle of the night, they surround the Midianites while they're in their camp. And each one of them had a torch, but they had covered the light from that torch with a clay pot. And then while they sat in total darkness, All of a sudden, Gideon's men smashed those clay pots and light burst forth. And all the Midianites scattered in fear. And that was a day that God saved his people. And this is what the light will do. It will save you from your enemies. He keeps going, verse 5. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. It's a picture of no more war. And so this is better than Midian because after the Midianites were defeated, there was lots of other ites that they had to contend with and defeat and war with. And maybe more importantly, there was the continued sin to contend with. But when this light wins, it puts an end to all of our struggles. So when these huge Assyrian armies, when they would be on the move and on the march, there were so many of them, as they were marching along in battle, it would shake the ground and it would stir up the dust. And so you could hear them and you could see them coming from miles away. And everyone, everyone would be struck in terror. And to further terrify their enemies, what they would do is they would soak their boots and their garments, they would soak them in the blood of their slaughtered enemies. I know, it's the feel-good Christmas sermon of the year. I know. So you would hear and see them coming for a long time, and then they were finally here. You would see them and their clothes soaked in the blood of the people that they had just conquered right before they got to you. All of that, he says, 
All of it. The trampling boot, the garment rolled in blood, all of it will be burned up in the fire. All of these tactics of fear and intimidation put upon the people of God will be removed. And not just removed, burned away. There will be no traces of them left. Not only will will there be light, life, happiness, joy, there will be no signs the darkness was ever even there. How? What mighty army will finally overcome the terrifying Assyrians? Well, the first three through five is the experience of the light. Verse six through nine tells us the source of the light. Verse six, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is surprising. This is not what they would have expected. A child will defeat our greatest enemies and put an end to darkness. We don't get a superhero. We get a baby. But this child is the completion and fulfillment of all God's promises. All of our hopes, dreams, and happiness rest in this child. He is the only source of light in your darkness. He says this son, he's given He's not earned, he's not found, he's not won, he's not bought. He's given. It's a gift to you, he says. This gift came with a tag on it. He says this gift is unto us. This present is addressed to us. His light is not generic, it's not distant, it's personal. God is saying this light is for you, not just mankind in general. It is for you. It is for Caleb and Hannah and Mike and Marla and Steve and Carla. It's for you. And then he gives us four names for this child. Now, in the ancient Near East, someone's name, it wasn't just a word that sounded good to their mama. It was was your character. It showed who you were. It was your essence. And so his names tell us how he is the light. He's wonderful counselor. He is wonder and wisdom Put together in one. Have you ever had someone give you some advice or tell you something that, that it, and it was so true that it was beautiful? It was attractive. Not only was it right, you loved it. The scriptures are telling us here that that's not what Jesus does. That's who Jesus is. He is wonder and he is wisdom. And it is no accident that light is a symbol both for beauty and for knowledge. He's mighty God. This is heroic language, the El Gabor. This child is the hero God. He does the impossible. He does what we cannot do. Now, I remember when I was a a teenager, I remember a group called the Power Team coming to our church. Y'all remember, has anyone seen the Power Team? I don't know if they're still around, but man, in the 90s, they were going strong. You know, and they show up in their track suits and muscles bulging out of every inch of their body. And they would do these incredible feats that I knew that I was way too weak to do. They would tear a phone book in half. They would bend metal pipes. All these things I was way too weak to accomplish. But they were strong where I was weak. Listen, the power team, track suits and all, are a bunch of sissies compared to mighty God. 
because even the power team was too weak to bring light into our thick darkness. But mighty God is strong enough to reach people in their darkest place. Okay, we can take down the picture of the power team now. <laughs> He's everlasting father. Now this word everlasting, it's the hardest for us to comprehend. Because it's really, it's a whole different reality than what we are used to living. It's a reality we've never experienced. And so the Bible tries to paint the picture for us a little bit. He says, you know, to God a day is like a thousand years. A thousand years is like a day. And so, you know, 80 years, well, that's like the time you spend eating breakfast this morning. Uh, Pull out your phone, send a text. Well, that's like a hundred years to God. But listen, the point isn't time. The point isn't try to imagine how old this child is. The point is that he is beyond our normal constraints. It is trying to describe a different realm of existence. And this different realm of existence affects how he relates to us. That's That's the ultimate point, is how he relates to us. He relates to us everlastingly, without constraints. And he does it as a father. A father. Forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, this child relates to you and me as a good, good father with love, with protection, with care, with provision. You know, there comes a point in every kid's life where they say to their dad something along the the lines of, well, you know, Timmy's dad lets him do this. Why can't I? You said it. Your kids will say it to you. It's universal. And the answer is always the same. Well, I'm not Timmy's dad. You are my child. Listen, light will shine into your darkness when you realize this wonderful counselor, this mighty God, looks to you and says, you are my child. Forever and ever and ever and ever, everlastingly, you are my child without constraints. He's also the prince of peace. He is the one who brings peace, rest, tranquility, wellness, wholeness. Wherever he goes, peace follows with him. That's how we get to peace. So in the same way light infiltrates and spreads all over the darkness, peace spreads through this child. Now the opposite of peace is anxiety. When we don't have peace, anxiety reigns. In our world today, anxiety reigns. We live in an age of anxiety. I feel it. You feel it. We all feel it. We have lots of stuff, but we don't have peace. We grope and we grope around in the darkness. We look for it, but we can't make the worry stop. We can't calm our brain down. We can't stop the catastrophizing or the fear of failure. So what we do is we take it out on others and we reproduce our own anxiety in other people. And the next thing you know, darkness has turned into thick darkness. You can, you can search the earth for peace, but you won't find it. You and I can't produce our own light, but the Prince of Peace can bring it. He brings it with him, and when he shows up, he brings peace with him. You see, biblically, peace is relational. It comes from having a right relationship with God himself, and then he brings the peace into every area of our life. And so this child, this baby that's a gift to you and me, his entire program is to impose peace on an anxiety-soaked world. What happens 
when this child, this prince of peace, peace moves into action and begins to impose his light in the darkness. That's what verse 7 is all about. Verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord will do this. The picture is a never-ending increase. Never-ending increase of his kingdom, of peace, will never reach the end of it. See, we tend to think of peace as finite, as limited. Once we get it, that's it. We've come to the end. There's no, there's no more. But we will never reach the end of God's peace. Isn't that amazing? For all eternity, there will always be more kingdom, more peace, more justice, more righteousness. The picture is that the perfect will keep on getting more perfecter. And I know that's not good English. I know that doesn't make sense, but that's the picture. How? How is this possible? It's possible because of the zeal of the Lord. And that's it. His passion will do it. Your passion won't do it. It doesn't depend on your dedication. It doesn't depend on your zeal. In fact, no other attempt will do this. It doesn't matter how sincere it is. It cannot accomplish what is described in this passage. God alone in his passion, his purpose, his zeal will do this. And he did. He did. You know, I love that we are reading this passage on the day after Christmas. Because in some ways, the day after Christmas today is kind of the first day of disappointment in the best the world has to offer. You know, many of you hope, I did once again, maybe some stuff would bring us a little more happiness. Or that maybe some time off, some rest would bring us some peace. Or many of you maybe thought, you know what, maybe, maybe if, just, if my kids are happy, then I'll be happy. And so I'll buy some stuff, they'll be happy, and then I'll be happy. What could go wrong? But you know, you wake up today, you're still you. Darkness is still darkness. All, but all you know to do is keep trying. Those gifts, I know, those gifts you open, they're not making you happy. You, maybe you're already bored with it, like Mike was saying. Maybe you're thinking about the gift you didn't get. Maybe that time off wasn't all that peaceful after all. Maybe there was conflict. Maybe there was anxiety. But all we know to do is keep trying, keep trying again and again to, to produce and create our own light. And so you come here today stuck on the empty treadmill trying to make good things happen, trying to avoid the bad things. But no matter how hard you run, you can't do it. You can't do it. But you know the great thing about every treadmill? Every treadmill comes with one of those little red emergency shutoff buttons. And you can hit that button anytime you want to. You know what faith is? Faith is like hitting the red button on that treadmill, getting off of it, and go in and open in a Christmas present. It means you stop trying to create your own light. And instead you accept it as a gift. From the light. Jesus Christ. And Isaiah is saying to you and to me on this treadmill this morning. Jesus is the gift of light. And that gift is for you. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If you have questions or comments, we want you to let us know. 
Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.